The following podcast is a glimpse into the life of Ecclesia Houston. We pray it is a blessing as you seek to follow Jesus, the liberating King, and live in his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. Good morning, Ecclesia. Uh, my name is Erica Graham, and I've talked here a couple of times before, so you may or may not have seen me. Um, last week, I attended a service at Elder with my husband, and they asked me to do the invocation, and I wasn't exactly sure what that was. I thought it was a greeting and a prayer. So I'm walking up to stage at Elder, and if, if you've been to our other campus at Ecclesia, it's a lot bigger. And I don't know what an invocation is, and I think it's a greeting, but I think it's a prayer. So I get up on stage and I decide that it's kind of a prayer greeting. And so I said, thank you for coming. I pray that we will receive this well. And I walked around and did this prayer out loud. And I went back down and sat by my husband. And my husband is really good with me in that when he knows when I'm feeling insecure and when I need a little word of encouragement. So I sat by him and I said, was that weird what I just said up there? And he put his arm around me, and I thought, oh, he's going to make me feel better. He put his arm around me. He said, that was extremely creepy. <laughs> and I said, I'm preaching next weekend, and now I feel creepy. He said, well, don't be creepy. So my goal today is pretty baseline, just don't be creepy. And I think I can meet that goal today. High goals in 2019. But um, in all seriousness, I'm so honored to be here. We are kicking off a series at Ecclesia on love. And I love the word love because I think it's a word that comes with so much mystery. We use it a lot. Sometimes we overuse it. Other times we underuse it. And it's hard to describe what it means. We often in the Christian community say God is love and love is God. But what exactly does that mean? We can't always articulate that well. And if you think about other words that we use to describe how we're feeling, I will say things like, I am happy, I'm feeling anxious, I'm scared, I'm excited. But we don't do that with love. We don't say, I am love, I'm feeling love. We say, I'm in love. And love is one of the only words that we enter into because we know that love is something that exists within a story, within a life, within a bodied human experience. It's something we join in. It's not something we temporarily feel superficially. And I think the life of Jesus is a love story and what that tells me is that sometimes love is full of suffering and inconvenience. And to the outside world, it might look crazy sometimes because it's not a logical thing. Love in so many ways is a mystery that we as Christians are invited to engage in. And I think because it's hard to define love, um, we often talk about what it does. And in fact, Bob Goff, who spoke at Ecclesia several times, he wrote the book called Love Does. And I think that's such a brilliant title because love does things. And we can at least observe what love does when we define what love is. 
And so today I'm going to propose to you that love does three things. And the first thing that I think love does, and this might sound a little weird, I think love knows. And hear me out. Um, I was a high school teacher teaching English and college readiness at a low-income high school by Hobby Airport. And my one goal was to make sure that each child felt loved and appreciated and admired. And I thought if they learn something, that's a bonus. But I first and foremost want these kids to know, these teenagers to know that I understand them and I love them. And it was the first week of school and I've changed her name for this story. But I had one student, we're gonna call her Jenny. Jenny came up to me after the first week of school and she said, Miss Graham, why don't you like me? And I'm a sensitive person, so I got a little teary-eyed and I thought, I do like you. But when you're on your phone, when I'm talking and I have to take your phone every day, and your assignments aren't on time, and you're not following directions. I don't love your behavior, but I really do like you, and I want to get to know you. And she said, I just have a feeling you don't like me. And I went home that day obsessing about this comment because I thought, what if she's right? What if I don't like her? And what am I going to do about that? And I tried to argue. I told my husband this story, and I said, this is why I do like her, and she's wrong. And the reality is it wasn't about being right or wrong, because her experience was that I didn't like her, and that's all that mattered. It doesn't matter if she's right or wrong. She feels in my presence that she's not loved. And so I asked Jenny to come in for lunch that week. I ordered pizza. I said, I want to have lunch with you every day this week. I'm going to order pizza. You bring a different friend. I want to get to know your friends. And uh, that week went on, and that first lunch was a little awkward because I wanted to be like, see, I like you. I brought you pizza. <laughs> but it's not that easy. Relationship building is not that easy. So day one was a little awkward. She brought a friend. We kept it su superficial. Day two, three, and four got better. By day five, we were eating this pizza and I had milk coming out of my nose at one point because I was laughing so hard at a story she told. And what I didn't know about Jenny is that she was raising two of her siblings. And her mom was a maid. And in fact, her mom could clean my house and she gave me her mom's business card. So she was hustling for her mom without her mom even asking. And a strange thing happened in my classroom. Jenny didn't take out her phone anymore that year. She turned her assignments in on time. All of her behavioral problems literally disappeared from pizza and lunch. And I realized that in order for me to really love Jenny, I had to get to know her. And it's hard for us to imagine a God that loves us, but what I think we often forget is that God knows us. I mean, when we watch a movie and we're rooting for the main character, we kind of feel like we know them and we want a happy ending. And that's how God feels about us, only he knows us so much more than we know those characters. You know, in the movie, you just want the character to figure their life out and you want it to end good. I think God is watching our movie on a whole nother level because he knows every insecurity we have. 
And we are that main character that he is rooting for. Psalm 139 talks about how well God knows us. O eternal one, you have explored my heart and know exactly who I am. You even know the small details like when I take a seat and when I stand up again. Even when I am far away, you know what I'm thinking. You observe my wanderings and my sleeping, my waking and my dreaming, and you know everything I do in more detail than even I know. You know what I'm going to say long before I say it. It is true, eternal one, that you know everything and everyone. You have surrounded me on every side, behind me and before me, and you have placed your hand gently on my shoulder. It is the most amazing feeling to know how deeply you know me inside and out. The realization of it is so great that I cannot comprehend it. And so I think Psalm 139 makes it clear that to love is to know and that of course God loves us because he understands us on a level that we probably don't even understand ourselves. The second thing that I think love does is love empathizes. And that empathy sounds like a word we hear a lot, but it's a really complicated word, actually. And when I was in college, my husband and I broke the exact same foot the same week at the same time. That is a picture of us before we went to a party at 19 years old. My husband, the first, I showed him the picture I was going to show, and he said, why are my shorts so long? And I'm wearing Nike... <laughs> And he said, I'm wearing Nike shocks. Can you not show that? And I'm like, I'm in one high heel. So you're not the fool. But so we both broke our feet at the same time. And part of our rehab, he was a football player, and he had to um, rehab his foot through water jogging. So you go into the deep end of a swimming pool and you like do sprint intervals. It looks ridiculous because you don't move. You like sprint in one place and then you rest on the side and you do these intervals to keep your cardiovascular health up and then you also don't hurt your feet because you're just in water and it's low weight bearing activity. So we were both had this prescription to water jog. How adorable. Well, he had, the football team had their own private pool. It was like a spa. It was the University of Wisconsin, ridiculous football program. They get their own pool. I had to drive myself at 5 a.m. to the public swimming pool to use the pool before the swim team got there. So at 5 a.m. one morning, I learned pretty eloquently, and I don't recommend this, I was able to keep my boot on and drive with my left foot, which is not smart. But I, I was driving to the pool, it was snowing outside, and I was driving with my left foot. So this is not responsible. And this car behind me starts honking at me because I swerved a little and I didn't pick up right when the light switched. You know those like people that just are on you if the second it turns, you're not all, taken off. And I'm driving with my left foot, buddy. The gas, I'm like, brake, gas, brake, ga gas. <laughs> so. I took a while to find that gas pedal and he just honked and he's going like this. And I'm thinking, I have a broken foot 
and you can only see this part of me, but under here I have a cast on and I'm driving with my left foot to go water jog at 5 a.m. I don't want to be doing this. And I'm thinking if he only knew that the reason I was driving like that is because I have a boot on my foot, then surely he would have a little bit more empathy. But Ecclesia, doesn't everybody have a boot on somewhere? Aren't we all healing something? And when we act like that driver and we make fast judgments, calling people jerks and idiots and they don't know what they're doing, when we go to that part of our brain without going to the human side that remembers that somewhere there's a cast and there's something broken under that cast healing. And I have a pretty good life. My cast right now is pretty small. Some people are grieving. Some people are going through divorce. Maybe you've been through an ugly divorce. Maybe you are struggling with depression or mental illness. Maybe you had just had a really hard holiday season. And we're all healing something. And so when we don't treat each other like we have those casts on, and we go right to what we can see, I think we're missing out on a chance to connect on a human level and on an empathetic level that is like a baseline requirement for being a Christian. Very baseline. You see them as a human and you know they're suffering and healing just like everyone else, maybe worse. Uh, Brené Brown has a really good video on the difference between sympathy and empathy. And it's a couple minutes, we're gonna watch it here. So what is empathy and why is it very different than sympathy? Empathy fuels connection. Sympathy drives disconnection. Empathy, it's very interesting. Teresa Wiseman is a nursing scholar who studied professions, very diverse professions where empathy is relevant and came up with four qualities of empathy. Perspective taking, the ability to take the perspective of another person or, or recognize their perspective as their truth. Staying out of judgment, not easy when you enjoy it as much as most of us do. Recognizing emotion in other people and then communicating that. Empathy is feeling with people. And to me, I always think of empathy as this kind of sacred space when someone's kind of in a deep hole and they shout out from the bottom and they say, I'm stuck, it's dark, I'm overwhelmed. And then we look and we say, hey, climb down. I know what it's like down here. And you're not alone. Sympathy is... Ooh, it's bad, uh huh. Uh, no, you want a sandwich? Um, empathy is a choice, and it's a vulnerable choice because in order to connect with you, I have to connect with something in myself that knows that feeling. Rarely, if ever, does an empathic response begin with at least. I had a, yeah. And we do it all the time because you know what? Someone just shared something with us that's incredibly painful and we're trying to silver lining it. I don't think that's a verb, but I'm using it as one. We're trying to put the silver lining around it. So I had a miscarriage. Oh, at least you know you can get pregnant. I think my marriage is falling apart. At least you have a marriage. <laughs> John's getting kicked out of school. At least Sarah is an A student. 
But one of the things we do sometimes in the face of very difficult conversations is we try to make things better. If I share something with you that's very difficult, I'd rather you say, I don't even know what to say right now. I'm just so glad you told me. Because the truth is, rarely can a response make something better. What makes something better is connection. So I think that's such a brilliant video, and I give that video a lot of credit. It's shown in a lot of education spaces, and when you talk about social and emotional learning, that video is often shown. And I love that video. But at the same time, I'm like, that video is so old. Like, that whole video is just Jesus. Like, Jesus didn't judge us. We, in Christianity, we have a unique frame of reference where our God doesn't judge us from up above. He comes down into a human body as a baby and grows with us and feels all the pain and suffering alongside us. And so when I watch that video, I get excited because there, there is a difference between sympathy and empathy, and I love how that's articulated. And at the same time, that is our 2,000-something-year-old story that we've been telling forever, is that our God and what, the kind of people we're called to be is a people that comes down and experiences pain and suffering with each other, just as Christ did for us. Um, I don't know about you, but in my life, I have some people who I go to when I'm feeling unsure or scared or vulnerable because I know that their response is going to be empathy. And I have some people in my life who I'm probably going to feel judge, judgment from, and I'm probably not going to go to them in times of crisis. And so I think we know the people that are safe to be empathetic towards us. My husband, um, we got married in 2012. And when, for those of you that were at my last sermon, I mentioned in third grade I was diagnosed with OCD. So I had a hand-washing problem in third grade. Um, among, I did religious rituals, which sounds creepy again, but it's, it's actually quite normal in OCD uh, childhood to, do, to ritualize things. But I, was, I got therapy, got help. I still have um, episodes that resurface once in a while. Once in a while, OCD will rear its ugly head, and I'll have what I call a bad day. Um, but it's a lot less frequent than uh, it was when I was young. And we had just got married, and my husband knew I struggled with this once in a while, and he had seen it, but not really a full-blown episode. And I had just seen a picture of a shiny bathtub with some colorful bars of soap and a towel draped over the side in a magazine catalog. And I wanted to style our bathroom just like that because I was going to be a fancy, proper wife and decorate to perfection. That's, it's only, that's only funny if you know me because I'm really messy and sloppy and it's, it's, I'm not, do not have everything to a T. But in this moment, I bought these three bars of soap at Home Goods, and I started to arrange them it, according to how I remembered in that picture I saw. And I arranged these three bars of soap for about an hour. And I realized, okay, I don't know if this is my OCD. I'm just trying to make the, it look right. And I was kind of trying to rationalize it. And another hour went by. 
And another hour went by and I realized it was a problem and that I was in an episode and I know the tools to get me out of it, but I didn't want to get out of it. And my husband came in and he said, you've been in here a long time. And I got kind of angry because I didn't want him to catch me. I was embarrassed. I knew it made no sense. So I said, just leave. Just, uh, I'm fine. And I shut the door and locked the door and rearranged these three bars of soap for probably another an hour. And he knocks on the door and he said, are you going to come out of the bathroom today? This is his new wife. Like what is going through his mind? And I said, I just, it's 10 more minutes, 10 more minutes. And he said, what are you doing? I said, I'm trying to get this, I'm trying to decorate the bathroom. And he looks and the only decoration I have is soap. <laughs> so imagine his confusion. And towards the end of the day, he came in to check on me again and I just hit the ground and started crying. I was embarrassed. I was ashamed that I didn't get myself out of that day. I canceled plans. I was supposed to have lunch with a friend. I canceled plans to rearrange soap. And it was so silly. I knew it made no logical sense as uh, OCD is not logical. Um, and so he sat on the floor with me and my cry soon turned into laughter. Because I thought, this is just so ridiculous. And he had seen me in health for the most part. So this was a weird day for both of us. And we are both just on the bathroom floor laughing. And he takes the soap, he says, I think they should go like this. And he throws the soap across the room and we are just dying laughing at how silly this is. And I tell that story because that is the perfect situation where he responded with empathy and not sympathy. If he came in there with judgment and said, you're crazy, get out of the bathroom, stop, knock it off. I don't know how that day would have gone for both of us. But it ended as one of what I think is the most beautiful days of our marriage. It ended with us dying of laughter on the bathroom floor and throwing soap at each other. And so when, we res when people respond without judgment, we can feel it. And when people respond with judgment, we can also feel that. Uh, Jesus talks about not judging a couple times. One, in John 8, 3 through 7, he says, Let anyone of you who is without sin cast the first stone. Right? So he is clear that, hey, we're all sinners. We, none of us are perfect, so let's not project perfection on other people. Another thing he says in Luke 6, 37, he says, if you don't want to be judged, then don't judge. And so I think Jesus was really attuned to this idea. The judgment and sympathy was a lot different than the kind of love and empathy that Jesus was here to live out. Third, and this is my final point. So, so far we have love knows, love empathizes. And I think the final thing that love does is love expands and includes. And I think, I often think of being left out as like a childhood thing. Like you remember being left out on the kickball team or you were drafted last at some recess thing. That's when we remember being left out. But then you grow up and you realize you still feel left out sometimes. You don't want to admit it, but like you didn't get that invitation to that party that you saw your friends at on Instagram. And you wonder, oh, they didn't invite me. 
we still as adults, I think once in a while struggle with feeling excluded from communities. And so if love is always the kind that expands and includes, then exclusion has no place. And Jesus made that really clear. Jesus was the one who ate with the tax collectors and the prostitutes. He purposely went out of his way to include and get to know and empathize with those that were often left out. Um, When I was in elementary school, I was one of those kids that read last in my grade. So everybody in my class could read, and I couldn't read yet. And I had to be pulled out by a teacher. And Mrs. Adams would come to the door. And I knew that I had to leave the classroom because everyone else could read and I couldn't read. So me and one other kid, um, I'm thinking of the podcast, I can't say names. Me and one other kid, we left the classroom. And we would go learn to read at our level because we couldn't read yet. And I hated when Miss Adams would come, but I loved it at the same time. Because I hated leaving and wondering if my whole class thought I was stupid. But I also loved knowing that I didn't have to be embarrassed around all these other kids that could read better than I could. And there was one day where Mrs. Adams didn't show up. And I don't know if she was sick. I'm not, my memory isn't clear on why she wasn't there, but she didn't come. And so I had to stay in the classroom and we read with the class. And that day we did something called popcorn reading. So popcorn reading is like, if I'm Sam, I'll, I'll read a paragraph and I'll say, popcorn, Adam. And then Adam will read a paragraph and they'll say, popcorn, Barbara. And Barbara will read a paragraph. And that's how popcorn reading works. And I remember just looking at this book, and I did not understand what it was. And I just thought, please don't popcorn, Erica. Please don't popcorn, Erica. And about 10 minutes went by, and my heart was pounding. And sure enough, someone said, popcorn, Erica. And I thought, what am I going to do? So I took all the courage I had, and I said, pass. And the teacher said, why don't you give it a try? And my eyes started to well up with tears and all of the words became fuzzy because my eyes were wet and I couldn't read even if I tried. And I sat quiet. And I think the teacher must have known that I was having an emotional reaction because he then popcorned it to somebody else. But I remember looking at that book and the class starting to whisper and head starting to look at me and noticing that I was crying and not knowing what to say, because like, why is she crying? She just got popcorned. And later that day at recess, I went to work on a snow fort with a group of girls. We would work on these snow forts and then continue them the next day. It was like our project every recess. So I put my sweatpants on and my boots and my gloves and mittens. I grew up in Wisconsin, so it was cold during the winter. And I went off to work on this snow fort. And one of the girls said, This snow fort is for people that can read. And I remember thinking, I can't, she was one of my friends. And another friend got out of the snow fort and she said, if Erica can't get in this snow fort, then I don't want to be here either. And her name was Amy Hacker. And Amy Hacker got out of that snow fort and we went off into a field and she started building a snow fort that anyone could join. 
And Amy was really cool and artistic and kind, and so I knew whatever snow fort Amy was in charge of, it was going to be an awesome snow fort. And when I think of that story, I think of what love does is expand and include. And the kind of fort Amy was ready to build was one that anyone could join. It didn't matter how you could read. What does reading have to do with being in a snow fort anyways? But I think in life we often make these arbitrary rules about who belongs and who doesn't based on things that we're good at or not good at or adequate or not adequate at. Um, There is in Corinthians 12, I think, um, this is really summed up in a unique way. It says, just as a body is one whole made up of many different parts, and all the different parts comprise the one body, so it is with the anointed one. We were all ceremonially washed through baptism together into one body by one spirit. No matter our heritage, Jew or Greek, insider or outsider, no matter our status, oppressed or free, we were all given the one spirit to drink. Here's what I mean. The body is not made of one large part, but of many different parts. Would it seem right for the foot to cry, I am not a hand, so I couldn't be part of this body? Even if it did, it wouldn't be any less joined to the body. And what about an ear? If an ear started to whine, I am not an eye, I shouldn't be attached to this body. In all its pouting, it is still part of the body. Imagine the entire body as an eye. How would a giant eye be able to hear? And if the entire body were an ear, how would an ear be able to smell? This is where God comes in. God has meticulously put his body together. He placed each part in the exact place to perform the exact function he wanted. If all members were a single part, where would the body be? So now many members function within the one body. And I love that from 1 Corinthians because it shows that you can't compare an eye to an ear and what it does and which one's better because they're all part of a body. And I think when we see each other as unique and special and gifted in separate and different ways, but all belonging nonetheless to the body of Christ, to the body of the church, to the kingdom of heaven, that we can begin to see through eyes that expand and include the way love does. And Jesus' life is a testament to expanding and including his love for all people. Ecclesia, let me pray with you. Dear God, I pray that as we go out into this week, that we will remember that love knows. And that because you know us, you love us. And when we have difficult people in our lives, I pray that we will make an effort to get to know them so that we can see their human side and begin to love them as well. I pray that we will focus on empathy in 2019 and that we will lower ourselves into the pain of other people so that we can be people that are empathetic in love and not judgmental in sympathy. And last, I pray that we will remember to expand and include 
because your story is a love story that does exactly that. And when we live into your rhythm, we are better people for it. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information, please visit our website at www.ectasiahouston.org.